Well, good morning, everyone. So excited you are here. So excited for those who are joining us online. And the reason I'm so excited is because today we start a brand new message series entitled David. And over the next few weeks, obviously, we're going to be taking a look at the life of David. And as many of you know, David was many things. David was a shepherd. David was a musician. David was a poet. David was a warrior. And yes, David was a king. I've entitled my message this morning, Understanding Potential. Understanding Potential. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. We know scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart. Now, David wasn't perfect. David had made some mistakes. And what was it, in spite of his failures and his mistakes, what was it about David that made him a man after God's own heart? And that's what we're going to be taking a look over the next few weeks. And I want to jump right into the message. And I want you to meet David. We meet David in Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 16. As a boy. Now, most will say he's anywhere between 10 and 12. Some go as high as 15. So when we're introduced to David, it's not like he's five, six years old. He's around anywhere between 10 to 12, maybe as high as 15 years old. Now, I just want to give you the context of where we are at this time. We are in the era where God has rejected Saul as king. Now, Saul is still the king, but it grieved God's heart that he made him king. So, the Lord told Samuel, who was the prophet of the day, God's spokesperson, to go to the house of Jesse because the Lord has chosen one of his sons to be king. And he wanted Samuel to go and to anoint him. Now think about this for a moment. How wise is Samuel? Samuel says, Hey, hey God, if he, I have this concern. If I go and anoint one of Jesse's sons king, and Saul finds out about it, He'll kill me. That's that's treason. And the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say you're going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. So Samuel takes this heifer with him. He gets to the house of Jesse. He consecrates Jesse and his sons. And here's the key word. You got it? He what? He, he invited them to the sacrifice. 
The day of the sacrifice comes. Jesse brings his sons. Samuel sees the oldest, Eliab. He says, oh man, what a fine looking man. That's, that's got to be the man. He, he's got to be the one. And the Lord says, no. How do you recognize potential? But the Lord says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So Jesse has all his other sons pass before Samuel, and none of them are chosen. Samuel's like, hey, hey Jesse, you got any more sons? Oh, yeah. My, my youngest is out watching the sheep. Come on. Are you tracking with me? My youngest is out tending the sheep. Have you ever placed yourself in the shoes of David? How would you feel? Let's be honest. If the man of God, the prophet, visits your family, invites them to a sacrifice, it's not every day. We, we, he, the man of God, Samuel, comes, the prophet of God comes, invites the family to a sacrifice. All your brothers are there and you're not. They're having a party without you. You haven't been invited. Now you may say, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. As you read on in David's life, remember when David took a, a, a cheese and bread delivery to his brothers in battle? And the one oldest son says, how come you're not with the sheep? And David says, because I left a shepherd in charge. My question is, why didn't the father leave a shepherd in charge and didn't have David come to the party? Now you say, well, maybe you're stretching this a little, Pastor, too much. But you know what's so interesting about the life of David that we don't see in the life of many others? We have the narrative of the story. We, we know what David said and what he did. But we have much more than just a narrative. Why? Because we have the writings of Psalms where you not only get the narrative, but you get inside of David's mind. His feelings, his emotions. And in Psalms 98, verse 8, David writes, I'm a foreigner to my family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Now, are you beginning to identify with maybe there's something more than him just watching his father's sheep? There have been books written on David's identity crises. Kind of interesting. 
But here's the message I felt so impelled this week. Maybe there's some of you here today, or maybe there's some watching online this morning who you can identify with David. Maybe you haven't always been the chosen one in your family. Maybe you haven't been the favorite. Maybe you always felt like an outsider. Maybe there's been parties that they've had without you. Maybe you haven't felt loved, wanted. Maybe you didn't feel like your father valued you the way you should have been valued. Or, or maybe your mother had so many other things vying for her attention that she didn't give you the attention that you thought you needed. And like David, maybe you don't feel worthy, valued, left out, not welcomed. Well, David comes in on the scene And when David walks in, the Lord said to Samuel, rise, anoint him. He's the one. And scripture says, in the presence of his brothers. Hello, somebody. In the presence of his brothers where he gets no respect, Samuel anoints David in the presence of his brothers. And I can't help but think that perhaps this morning, whether you're sitting at home, whether you're sitting in the sanctuary, maybe you can identify with David. And this morning, The Lord is saying to you, you are loved. You are valued. You are welcomed in my kingdom. I want you to rise. I want to anoint you because you're the one. I have a plan and I have a purpose for your life. You are of value to me. And if that's you, take it from the Lord this morning. All right, let's fast forward five years. Five years, David, well, in the state of New Jersey, he would probably be applying for his learner's permit now. And he's faced with a challenge. At the age of maybe, now we're we're looking at 15, 16, 17, and, and around that age group. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war, and assembled at Soko in Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill. The Israelites occupied another with the valley in between them. Come on, somebody. You know what we have? We have the old story of the Hatfields and the McCoys. And you know the story so well. A Goliath, a champion by the name of Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistines' camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Do you need the conversion rate on that? 
that's nine feet. Nine feet tall. And if you read on, it, it basically says that he was covered from head to toes with bronze. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, six feet long. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels. The point of, the, uh, uh, of that shaft, the iron, was 15 pounds in weight alone. And it wasn't a javelin, but it was a stabbing device. Come on, think of it. David, nine feet tall, he was probably not on the front line. He probably had a group of men in front of him, and he just stood over those men, anyone coming to attack. He would just take that six-foot spearing rod with a 15-pound iron point and just boom, 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 just knock people off, man. Someone gets stuck, guys would just pull them off. And... It's the truth. It, was... it wasn't like Hollywood made it, it makes it out today. And Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me if I'm able to fight him and, and, and if, if he is able to fight me and, and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man. And let each of us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' word, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed. And they were terrified. And Goliath, twice a day, day after day, week after week, for 40 days, Scripture says, this went on. My friends, Israel was in need of a champion. Israel was in need of a hero. And who would they look to? If, if you were in battle, who would you look to? You would look to the king. And they looked to the king for two reasons. Number one, they looked to the king because, guess what? He was the king. But he looked to the king for another reason. Remember when they chose Samuel as king? He was chosen for two reasons. You know why? Because he was handsome. And he was what? Taller. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was the biggest and when there's a giant challenging you in the valley, what do you do? You rely upon your biggest guy. They had placed their hope in their king like they should have. And by placing their hope in the king, they waited 
And they waited. And they waited. And day after day, they were just anticipating. They were just waiting for their biggest to come out of his tent with his armor on saying, come on guys, let's go into battle. But they waited. Because that's where they had put their hope in their biggest. Now I've said this a couple of times and some of you are newer. And, and I grew up in northwest New Jersey in a little community called Califon. Population 700, maybe 800. We had a grammar school and we had a grade, we had a class for every grade. So basically what happened is the same kids you were with in kindergarten, if their family hadn't moved out of California, you were with them all the way through eighth grade. The average size of our class was about 18. And there were, we were like family because you were with everybody. But among family, guess what happens every once in a while? A little fight breaks up. Usually there were five girls and there were 13 boys. My average class size was about 18 all throughout. And of the 13 boys, well, half of them were either named Jeff or David. There was David D, David H, and David T. There was, David, there was Jeff C, there was Jeff H, and I was Jeff P. Now, in the younger years, when there was a lot of potty talk, Jeff P became a problem. So, I would get picked on from time to time, made fun of. Oh, Jeff P, uh, Jeff P, did you pee in your pants? Oh, Jeff P around the corner, and Jeff, you know, it was kids. So, my best friend, one of my best friends, was who? The biggest kid in the class, Jeff C. He got the nickname Krusty. He's big, strong as an ox. Here, in fact, I actually have my eighth grade picture. That's, that's me in the middle, and Jeff, Jeff's over there on, on your, yeah, your right hand side. Big, strong kid. Remember one day, waiting for school to start, we were out in the playground, and hey, Jeff P, Jeff P. And I pushed this kid, third grader. I just pushed him. And he started coming after me. And Jeff C came right in between us. He pushed the kid, and he says, Don't come back. Yeah. Hey, I know that the nieces, uh, Sal and Liz, man, you're moving to South Carolina this week, and this is your last week, and we're going to miss Ella. And Nick, man, Nick, this is for you. Nick loves to wrestle, and he knew that I wrestled in high school, and Nick always wanted to see a, a wrestling picture of his pastor. So I, I just thought today would be the day on his last Sunday with us. Here's a, a high school picture. Uh, that's me down in front. Uh, uh, I, was a, I was a sophomore. I wrestled varsity. But I, I had to show you the guy in the back. Guess who that is? That's Krusty crying, man. Uh, I, was, I was in 129 weight class. He was heavyweight. That's who he was. Now, this is where our story intersects with this Old Testament story. Because here is what's true of every one of us. What's true of you is what's true of me. We place our hope in what we depend on. We place our hope in whom we depend on. If there is something that is reliable and it keeps functioning, we place a lot of hope in it. 
But when that thing dies and it doesn't produce anymore, ah, we become angry and we throw it away. We place our hope in what we depend in. We place our hope in whom we depend on. And there are times when we depend on someone and they let us down. They don't come through. They disappoint. And then we become anxious. We become discouraged. We start to worry. We might start to panic. Fear may set in. Proverbs says 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. When hope lets you down, when that is what you are hoping for, anticipating, and it doesn't come through, it makes your heart sick. Now you understand where Israel is at. Their hope was in their king, the biggest, to come out of his tent and take care of this giant. And day after day, when he didn't come through, hope deferred made them terrified, made them sick. He started to lose credibility as each day passed with no response. And we have an army terrified. This stalemate, this story is a perfect illustration why God never wanted Israel to have a king. God always desired Israel to be a theocracy. He always wanted to be their king so that their trust would be in him, their hope would be in him, that it wouldn't be in someone else. And when they asked to be like other nations, and God gave them a king, and their trust and their hope was in their king, and when they were disappointed... You know what the moral of the story is? Be careful what you ask for. Let's get on with the story. Let's look at David's trust. David's father sends him on a, with a care package to the front line to his brothers. He had three brothers that were fighting. And David, you know, gets to the battle scene and his oldest brother says what are you doing here what here dad wanted you to have this well who's taking care of the sheep well i've left the shepherd in charge do we even need to go there <laughs> how can i couldn't leave a shepherd in charge when you guys had a party without me that's some of the identity crisis but david's over that now And like any teenage boy, he's curious and he hears this roar of a giant and he runs to the front line and and out before in the valley, he sees this nine-foot giant terrorizing, defying the armies of the living God. And he hears men talking, yeah, if you want to fight him, you can go fight him. And if you beat him, the king says that you will be a wealthy man and you'll be exempt from taxes and you can even have his daughter as your wife. 
Now, David used to hang around the palace, remember? Playing the harp, soothing Saul. David says, oh, have his daughter as my wife. So David starts to become a little inquisitive. David asks the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Ooh, listen to the wording there. It's not really about the money. It's not about the beauty. But it's about his nation. David knew whose he was. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? This uncircumcised Philistine said that Goliath's not a part of the covenant. He's not a part of the chosen. He's not protected under God. Besides, we are his chosen. He gave us this land. He promised us this land. Who are these people who are trying to take away what God has given us? And while the rest of the army is terrified, frightened, David is offended. And Saul hears that there is a volunteer who wants to fight this giant. And Saul calls in David to his tent. And right away, Saul looks at him and, oh my goodness, he doesn't see any wounds. He doesn't see any scars. He, he, he just sees this little shepherd boy. He shakes his head and he says, I'm sorry. And David says, whoa, wait. I may be a shepherd boy. And I may not have any military experience. But I want you to know when I was out watching my father's sheep, a lion came and took one of the sheep And I didn't do what ordinary shepherds do. They would take care of the flock and just let that one go and go back to the father and say, oh, well, we lost one. But I left the flock and I went after that one and I took him from the lion and I killed the lion with my bare hands. And shortly after, a bear came and I did the same thing. Your servant has killed both the lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. And Saul's like... Do you see something? There's no confusion. There's only clarity. David's like, why isn't everybody else seeing this? An enemy of our people is an enemy of God. Goliath isn't simply defying this army. He's the fine God. And David's assumption was based upon assumption that he would carry throughout 
his whole life, the man or woman whose hope is in the Lord need not to fear even when there's something to be afraid of. Even when there's something to be afraid of, a man or a woman whose hope is in the Lord does not need to fear. David says, pick me. Let me do what no other man is willing to do. Let me do what you're not willing to do yourself, king. Ooh. You see, all those lonely nights out in the fields watching his father's sheep, all those long days out in the field watching the sheep, David had plenty of time to look up and know where his help comes from. Just worshiping his Lord. As I said before, what's so cool, what's so interesting about the life of David, which I love so much, other than other Bible characters, is not only do you get the narrative, not only do you hear what he said and what he does, but you get an insight into his mind through the writing of the Psalms. Through his writing, through his poetic writing, you get an insight into his mind, into his emotions, to his thoughts and what he's feeling. And later on in a document, he documents this incredible perspective. He documents this credible perspective that carries him throughout his whole life. In Psalms 25, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I don't put my trust in my wealth, in my riches. I don't put my trust in my position or my power. I don't put my trust in my intelligence or or my abilities or or, or my giftings. I, I don't put my trust in my creativity. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. No one Whose hopes is, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And then he does what no other king would do. Guide me. Guide me in your truth. Teach me. For you are my savior. My hope is in you all day long. And as this week, I was just looking, looking at Psalms 25. All of a sudden, When your hope is in the Lord. Please. When your hope is in the Lord, you'll see clearly like David sees. You'll act confidently because you'll never be put to shame. You'll see clearly, you'll act confidently, confidently, but but you're, you're not egotistical about it. You're not arrogant about it. You walk in humility. Guide me. And David, because of his perspective of trusting in the Lord, he put his hope in the Lord. He was able to see clearly. He was able to act confidently. And he was able to walk humbly. Now for the rest of the story. He declared to Goliath, who are you to defy the armies of the living God? And David makes it clear, the battle is the Lord's. And he kills Goliath. 
And David did what Saul should have done. David did what some of the other men should have done. But the other men, their trust was in the king. David's trust was in the Lord. And was able to see clearly, act confidently, and walked humbly. He recognized. He recognized that he can't control outcomes because there are too many variables outside of his control. All he could do is trust in his Lord. Men who walk humbly with God, women who walk humbly with God, students who walk humbly with God, teenagers who walk humbly with God, they wake up every morning and they realize, I can't control outcomes because there are too many variables outside my control. I can't control outcomes because there are too many variables outside of my control. But I can lean upon the one who's got the whole world and all the variables in his hands. Can you imagine waking up each morning and before you get out of bed, you utter these words, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Come on. Isn't that beautiful? You wake up in the morning and the first thing you do you realize that there are things I cannot control because there are variables that are outside of my control. So in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. All my hope is in you all day long. Imagine riding to work and you're not looking forward to the day that, that you have at hand. You're not looking forward to the staff meeting. You're not looking forward to the business meeting. You're not looking to some of the, uh, you're not looking forward to meeting this one customer. You're, you're not, you're not looking forward to problem solving, a problem that, that's taking place at work. And, and as you're on your way to work, work, you realize there are outcomes I can't control because there are variables that are outside of my control. But in you, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Imagine getting tested positive for COVID. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Imagine teaching this to your kids. That before they get out of bed. Come on, Johnny, say it with me. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust and my hope is in you all day long because what you trust in is where you put your hope. David trusted in his God. The rest of the soldiers trusted in their king. The king let him down. But God did not let David down. And because of David's attitude, even as a king, to acknowledge that there was a greater king, that made David a man after God's own heart. Would you bow your heads with me?